This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Bought Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. That's a million-dollar question that everybody seems to think they know the answer, but they don't. Why do they do it? I said, I didn't wreck the field. Carl Edward wrecked the field. I said, you know, I said, I can't keep chasing money. 
if I can't take one day off a week or one day off every two weeks to go play golf, then I don't need to own the business. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, last Wednesday was a really tough day in the world of motorsports. We lost Robin Miller, who was a longtime journalist up in Indy. And we also lost former Bush Series team owner, Randy Herzog. Both of them were lost to cancer. And Steve, we just had the episode with Shauna and the tribute that we did and the memorial that we did. And to have that episode followed up so closely by the losses of both Robin and Randy, man, that just hits home, man. That just hits home so hard. I did not know about Randy. That's sad. He had a heck of a team. Robin Miller, I did not know him well. We didn't come into a lot of contact, if any, that I remember, but I know that you knew him fairly well. Yeah, Robin was a longtime motorsports writer for the Indianapolis Star. Of course, he covered the Indy 500. He became a very uh, outspoken, controversial writer, but he was hugely popular. Now, I first met him in 1994 for the Brickyard 400. Went into the media center with my buddy Tom Higgins, and we saw Robin across the room in a room that was set up for the Indianapolis Star. And he was sitting in the middle of a group of people who were talking to him. He looked like he was holding court. We decided we wanted to go meet him. Yeah. And, uh, so we did. And we introduced ourselves. And Robin said, oh, yeah, he knew both of us. He knew both of us. He'd seen our stuff, read our stuff. That made me feel pretty darn good. We had a very nice, long conversation with him. Very open, very friendly guy. No question about it. And the rest of that day, as I remember, I was in that media center. Every time I'd look over toward that Indianapolis Star room, there was Robin sitting on a desk in the middle of people who was always interested in what he had to say. And I could tell right away he was a very influential guy. Well, I can't believe that Robin Miller was holding court. And I can't believe that Tom Higgins and Steve Wade were not holding court. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's put it this way. We held court with him for a long time. And Steve, what I remember of Randy, he was very quiet. He was very humble. But he had also put together one heck of a race team with his brother, Stan. And some of the guys that drove for him, I think people might recognize him. Uh, (laughs) Let's see, there was Todd Bodine. And then there was some guy by the name of Jimmy Johnson that drove for Stan and Randy over the years. That race team was led by crew chief, Tony Liberati, who's been on the podcast a couple of times now, and it it seems like we can't get rid of him, (laughs) (laughs) but Tony is actually with us to talk about his former boss, Randy. And first of all, Tony, I'm sorry for your loss. I know that that hit you hard. You actually made the trip up to Missouri to say goodbye to Randy, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I got the call. I talked to Randy off and on and, and, uh, and I got a call that said he was in bad shape and I just went and hopped on a plane and went to Missouri. Um, and, uh, I believe the second day I was there is when he passed away. We didn't think he was going to pass away that quick. We knew what, what he had was serious, but we didn't, 
we didn't think it would be that quick. And, uh, yeah, that, that hit, that hit really hard, really hard because that, that man, I was close to that man. What kind of a boss was he? He, uh, he was hands off. He would, uh, give you everything you needed and said, all right, go do it. And you could come back and, and ask him questions and, and no matter what you did or, or whether it was right or wrong, um, he would, he would be behind you. And, and, you know, everybody, everybody makes mistakes. And the one thing I learned about Randy and Stan is you could go to him and say, Hey, look, I messed up here. And, and they appreciated that and, um, and, and stood behind you on how to get it fixed. I wasn't scared to mess up or to fail in front of them guys, because I knew that they had my back and, um, and they would, they would stay behind me. Rambo, what is your best Randy Herzog story? (laughs) Uh, I, you know, Randy is an epitome of being a patriot. Now everybody thinks that I'm, I'm God loving flag loving Marine Corps loving Patriot, but Randy took it a step further in my contract. I had, if we want to race, I went to the soldier fortune convention. Also got a gun of my choice. We won the championship. I'd uh, get a machine gun, an M60 machine gun (laughs) that was in my contract. And that man, him and Stan, both, they were, they were just absolute Patriots. And, uh, Wherever we went, if me and Randy would, we would go to army surplus stores. We would go to gun training facilities, whatever, whatever. <laughs> and he was way better at it than I was. And wherever we'd go, he'd be like, Hey, come on, let's go. And we drive like two hours from Phoenix up into the Hills to some gun training facility, just so I could see it. And, uh, the way that, that they conducted themselves for that. And, and I, I got to go through a lot of schools, a lot of different little things that, um, that they clued me in on. It was pretty interesting. And, uh, I, all I can say is my best, my best story of both of them, Randy and Stan is them guys are Patriot to the end. If you cut them, they'll bleed red, white, and blue. Rambo, you're some kind of man. I tell you when it comes to bonuses for winning races or championships, most guys would be happy with money, but you <laughs> gun machine gun, my hat's off to you, man. Well, to wow. set the stage, to set the stage for this, I have personally witnessed Rambo open his briefcase <laughs> at the racetrack. And in that briefcase was a owner's manual for an M60 machine gun. I've seen it with my own eyes. All right. So all I've got to say is this. Thank God you did not win the championship. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I could probably I could probably say it now, but you know, um we were still bush racing pretty heavy after 9-11. And um I can guarantee you that my pit box um was probably more heavily armed than, than some of the, some of the police and SWAT teams and stuff that they had hanging around the area, because I was scared to death that we was going to have some time kind of attack. I guess I was paranoid 
You know, I mean, everybody, you know, you're always paranoid. You always prepare for the worst and hope for the best. But it was uh, it was pretty funny. You know, the first time I come into the garage area and uh, I don't want to get nobody in trouble, but they were checking everybody going through everybody's bags. And I made eye contact with one of the officials and he looked at me and he's like, come over here. <laughs> took me around it <laughs> so I could uh, get in. But, you know, I was I was on, you know. I was on their side. You know what I mean? I just, I was just real paranoid. And, um, and, and I, I, and Randy knew all about it and he knew exactly what was going on and he knew where to go. Should something go down. So y'all were safe and y'all didn't even know it. (laughs) (laughs) Rambo, just in conclusion, bottom line, what would you like for people to know and remember about not only Randy Herzog, but Stan, who we lost. How I don't even know how long ago did we lose Stan? Uh, three years ago. What would you like for people to know about them? Well, first, their commitment to do something, then, and they don't do nothing halfway. Everything they did was first class. When we first started, I had I I got in a little bit of trouble trying to cut corners, but I was trying to save money. I learned real real quick that they don't cut corners when it comes to anything. And uh, when they commit to something and they committed to Jimmy, I'm not sure how old he was. I, I'm thinking he's 14 or 15 years old. And they committed to Jimmy to do what they could do for him all the way to the Cup Series. Wow. And, I mean, my contract and Jimmy's contract were two years Bush and two years Cup. Now, obviously, he got a – a better opportunity, but the Herzogs and, and, and that, that says something about them too, that, you know, Jimmy come along with opportunity and they knew that they couldn't match that opportunity and they let him go to go do that. A lot of people wouldn't have done that, but, um, they are just committed when they say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. And you can take that to the bank. You can't ask for any more than that. By golly. They had a ton of integrity. They always cared about people, always cared about what they were doing. They were just really good people, really. And, and I can promise you that I haven't recreated an atmosphere or a race team that we had at Herzog Motorsports. And um, coming home on the airplane with Jimmy, and we had Mike Sinetko there too. And Mike, who, who went with me to Roush after the Herzogs, and then he went his separate ways and he said the same thing. So you never recreate what we had there. And it started from the owners and the owner's commitment. And once you knew you had that and you knew you was going to have everything that you needed, it just made a really good place to work. And I absolutely loved it. And I miss it every day. Rambo, you did go out to Missouri for the funeral, if I'm not mistaken. But I think the story that you told me yesterday was that you actually flew with Jimmy on his plane. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think that speaks volumes about what Jimmy thought of Randy. Yeah. I mean, we talk, we talk about Jimmy, but I, but you know, when I look at Jimmy and I know that everybody has an opinion, everybody sees Jimmy in a different light, but I got on that airplane and Jimmy is the same Jimmy that walked into my shop. 25 years ago, same guy, same attitude, same humble, same guy, and hasn't changed a bit. And that's how I look at him. 
he called me up and said, Hey, I want to go there. And I said, Hey, can I hop on your plane? He's like, Oh, hell yeah. And we had a ball. Yeah. We had an absolute ball. Rick, I wish you could have been there just to take some of that stuff we was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I hey. forgot. I forgot that Rich Bickle threw a head of lettuce at him in the lows. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time you do something like that, I'll give you a tape recorder. How's that? That'll be good. <laughs> then I'll be making them big bucks like y'all. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Rambo, thank you so much for joining us. I really do appreciate it. Appreciate it, Rambo. Thank you, buddy. All right. Good seeing y'all. I'll talk to you later. Hi, ma'am. Take care. Steve, I got to be honest with you. I don't know exactly where to go from a plane <laughs> trip with Jimmy Johnson in a armed and dangerous pit box. But Steve, by the way, we also have a podcast to talk about <laughs> this week. <laughs> Steve, that is so cool. I cannot tell you how cool it is to laugh on a day like today and to laugh with Rambo about Randy. That's the memories that I want to have. I don't want to yeah. remember the sadness. I want to remember the laugh. Yeah, as do we all. That's the yeah. way it should be, Rick. Yeah. And <laughs> like I said, we do have a podcast to talk about this week. We're going to share the third and final installment of our interview with Kevin LePage. And honestly, Kevin is basically remembered for one of two things. He's remembered for the Vermont Teddy Bear sponsorship. And the other one is not so great. And that is a big topic of conversation this week. This week, Kevin does give his side of the story on what was by far the most controversial incident of his career. And that, of course, took place in a 2008 nationwide series event. He was coming off pit road when all of a sudden everybody was wrecking and he was in the middle of a firestorm in that one. Everybody basically flamed it on Kevin, but Kevin, to his credit, has always claimed innocence. So listeners, hear what Kevin has to say and then decide for yourselves what to think. That's all I can say on that. Listen to what Kevin has to say, and then decide. So controversial, even today. And then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the May 1st, 2008 issue of NASCAR Scene. That issue features coverage of wins by Kyle Busch and Tony Stewart at Talladega, and also Kevin LePage being on the hot seat after that crazy mishap. There were also a lot of rumors going around that Tony Stewart was looking at going into team ownership <laughs> and that Danica Patrick might also be considering a move to NASCAR. Finally, there's a story on AJ Allmendinger struggling to get up to speed in NASCAR. And listeners, if you can, please consider helping us out on Patreon, help us out on PayPal. Every little bit helps. I don't care if it's a dollar a week. $5 a week, 10, 20, whatever. I would appreciate anything. It helps us do what we love to do here on the podcast. And that is preserving NASCAR history. If you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And also just as a reminder, this podcast is not associated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. After you left Jack, you bounced around mm -hmm. between Cup and Bush and Nationwide and, and whatever. What was that time 
like for you personally? Was there ever a point in there where you said, you know what, I'm going back to Vermont. It's just not worth the headache. Going back to Vermont was never in my vocabulary. Okay. Um, when I left Roush, went to Kodak, turned that team around after half a dozen races that Robbie Gordon started the season, and then we, we had some really good success. Then all of a sudden, I think early the following year, I get canned, and, and they brought Spencer in, I think it was, or Skinner or somebody. And then that relationship didn't work out, and then they got me back sec, you know, for a second ride. Jerry McClure told me, uh, he goes, I just want to tell you, he says, uh, we made we made a huge mistake. And I said, what's that? He says, by firing you the first time. He says, go back and look at our record. He says, you're the only one that has qualified a car as well as it has and raced as well as it has. And then we went to Bristol. That weekend, I was up at the shop talking with, with Larry. He goes, what do we need to do? I said, look, I said, Tim Brewer, now who was a crew chief at the time, I said, Tim Brewer is probably one, if not the best race caller I've ever worked with. But getting from point A to point B doesn't work. I said, we'd be out there, and, and I'd say, car's tight. Well, what do you think we ought to do? Car's loose. Well, what do you think? Yeah, that's exactly what I would do. Well, I'm not the crew chief. You hired me to drive. So Larry said, well, what do you think we ought to do? I said, honestly, I said, I know some guys that are great car chiefs or potential car chiefs down in Charlotte that would love to come up here and work for you guys and work on any Tim and bring that knowledge that Charlotte has to Abington. He goes, all right. He said, let's, let's talk about it. I said, all right. So we go to the race. I cut a tire down early in the race and made probably the same mistake that most drivers do. I drove around to the whatever front straightaway, back straightaway our pit stall was instead of diving right in on that. So I lost two laps. So then under caution, um, crew's talking to me. And I'm trying, I'm going back to them and, and they're not, they're not hearing me. So I come down pit road and we end up losing another lap on a caution. I look over and I've never seen it in my life. And people wouldn't believe me today if I tell them, but we had two radios and the radio wires somehow melted together. And so I ended up sliding my hand up through the radio wires and I got one radio to work. Well, by that time we're three laps down, never lost another lap that day, but we're three laps down and finished like, 20-something, you know. Well, you know how Larry is that. Bristol is this big racetrack, and, you know, we needed to do good. Well, Monday morning, I get a phone call from Larry, and he said, you know, after talking with Tim and I, I think we've decided that we're going to go a different direction. This is the second time? The second time. Okay. All right. Well, I'm sure Larry went to Tim and said, hey, look, Kevin wants to bring somebody in here. Well, Tim got worried, so he figured what's the best thing to do fire the driver and keep my job. So um, they struggled, you know, for a couple of years. And um, all of a sudden I get this phone call one day and um, this guy was uh, starting a new team. And they wanted Tim Brewer to be the crew chief general manager. 
And without saying so many words over the network, I said I wouldn't hire him if he was the last guy on the face of the earth. And I told him why. About 20 minutes later, my phone rang, and it was Tim Brewer. <laughs> How'd that conversation go? Well, I didn't answer it because I knew it was him. And uh, his message was something I can't repeat, but uh, he wanted to beat my butt, and, and uh, we haven't spoken since. You know, but, uh, um, you know, we we went from Morgan McClure. We went to uh, Jim Smith's car, the Seven Nation Rent car. Mike Wallace was floundering around again, and, and I got in there and stepped it up. Had stupid things fall off the car, you know, wheel spacer, screws back off, loosen the wheel, you know, just dumb stuff. But we had fast forwards, and all of a sudden I get fired, and they put Jimmy Spencer in the car. It seemed like between Spencer and Skinner and myself, we, we played the roulette wheel. My biggest break and I was close, so close, was driving for Everham when he had the 9 and the 19. Casey was really, really struggling. And so Ray called me, and he goes, we're going to Atlanta. He says, I want you to come to the uh, shop, and I want you to set the car, sit in the car, and we're going we're gonna to do a little driver swap during practice. So I go up to the shop. I change the seat belts because obviously Casey's shorter than me. Um, we adjust the steering wheel. We took all these measurements. So when I got to the racetrack at Atlanta, I wasn't driving down there. I was just going down there to be a relief driver. Ray gave me a radio. They brought, you know, the truck driver brought me a radio, and Ray gave me the code after the first practice, second practice, to go over because the car would be ready. Well, all of a sudden, they start doing this changeover, and Casey's looking at what's going on. Next thing you know, I walk over. And Casey's watching to see if we put tires on or not. Well, I didn't. I put the same tires on. They left the same tires on. They just, you know, all they wanted me to do is go out and do a two-lap qualifying run. I was six-tenths quicker. So I got out of the car. Casey got in the car. I went back out. He, he was horrible. So... Ray called me Monday, and he goes, um, I want you to come to Rockingham. He says, I think Casey will be done. Well, they ended up having a big court battle, and um, Ray couldn't get rid of Casey that easy. You know, and I, I don't know all the whole detail, but um, I went down to Rockingham for nothing. You know, but um, – uh, and then I don't know what happened the following year, you know, why I didn't get an opportunity, you know. But, uh, you know, we started with, you know, a bunch of um, new startup teams and was known as a start park driver. Kevin, this is a hard question to ask, but 2008 Talladega race, what happened? That's the 61 car you're talking about? Yeah. That's the million-dollar question that everybody seems to think they know the answer, but they don't. I've been down here since 1994. So what's that, 14 years yeah. up to that point? Every driver's meeting that you go to, regardless of what racetrack it is, NASCAR says, when you leave pit road, keep your left side tires on the yellow line. Blend on the back stretch. Left side tires. Left side tires. Okay. So that day, 
Um, in the driver's meeting, Joe Ballas says, when you leave pit road, keep your left side tires on the yellow line, blending on the backstretch. So um, we come down pit road um, to do our pit stop. My wife's spotting, and she goes, I'm leaving pit road. She goes, you know, packs off from four. Remember, left side tires on the yellow line. So, yeah, okay. So I take off. I'm going up through the gears. The next thing I know, I am got run over, and there's shit flying all over the place, and uh, there's a hell of a wreck. My car's killed. So well, I'm just I'm just going to ask about so so I'm sitting there <laughs> yes sir <laughs> I'm sitting there um you know getting interviewed yeah and I mean my wife says to me she goes what the hell did Carl what was what was Carl Edwards doing going to the bottom and I'm sitting there interviewing getting interviewed and I'm like I don't know what the hell where where his spotter was because I'm on the bottom of the racetrack and three lanes of traffic had already gone by me. And next thing you know, I get run over by Carl Edwards, who was back there, and he dove to the bottom because the lane opened up. Spotter never once said anything about a slow car on the bottom of the racetrack. So, Jerry Punch looks over at Dale Jarrett. They're both calling a race and said, what the hell happened to what, what what was that all about? NASCAR opens a door because they're race control TVs right next door, and they said, this is what you're going to say. Kevin pulled out in front of the lead pack. Now, how, and, do you, how do you know that? So Jerry looks over to Dale, and, and NASCAR said, no, that ain't what happened. And he goes, this is what you're going to say. So Sunday... In a driver's meeting, they said, all right, guys, you need to keep four tires below the yellow line when you leave pit road. 26 drivers got busted for doing the same thing I did. Because those 26 drivers, Tony Stewart, Bobby Labonte, Rusty Wallace, whoever was in that race, the ones that got busted, had done it ever since they came down here. Those were the rules. Monday morning, Jerry calls me. Punch. He goes, I want to apologize, Kevin, for embarrassing you on national TV. I said, I don't, I don't know what to say, Jerry. He goes, I went back and got the tape from Joe Ballas because we tape all the drivers meeting. Joe Ballas said, keep your left side tires below the yellow line. Period. And he says... NASCAR told me to tell it the way I said it on TV, and I did not want to do that. And after NASCAR walked out, even Dale said, Kevin didn't do anything wrong. And they went back and listened to the tape, and Carl Edwards Spotter never said a word. So NASCAR calls me and said, I need to um, make a national public apology to Carl Edwards and the rest of the field for wrecking everybody. Or I wasn't going to race a race again. That's the truth. And I have actually has a have a friend or supposedly friend on Facebook and Twitter that as every time my name comes up, he goes, "Oh yeah, he's a guy that wrecked the field," and I blocked him. 
And finally, he tried to message me a month ago to sit there and say, I apologize. I didn't want to stir any stuff up. Well, people don't understand what happened. And uh, last winter, I was over at the uh, Hall of Fame. And one of the guys down there, a young kid, asked me the same question you just asked. Why did I do it? And I said, I didn't wreck the field. Carl Edwards wrecked the field. And I explained the same thing I just said to you. And he goes, that makes sense. I don't know how to ask this next question, but did that follow you? No. 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 Um, Doug Taylor was the owner of the 61 car. And uh, he had a partner, Charlie Schaffner. That year, and I think that year and a little bit maybe the following year, um, or whatever that whole year was, uh, Doug was chasing money. That particular race at Talladega, Doug, we had just come back from Mexico City. We raced Mexico City and went to Talladega. Uh, Doug went to Texas um, and met with an investor down there to um, get some money to go racing, some more money. And uh, when we went to Talladega, we didn't have a race motor in that car. We unloaded a car without a motor in it. NASCAR wouldn't even let us go through inspection. Finally, the guy wired the money over to our account, and and um, Doug Yates had a motor down there in one of the trailers, and it came over to us. But throughout that year, the story I keep kept getting from Doug was, we got money coming. We got money coming. Long story short, um, I went to Bob Jenkins, and I said, are you willing to take this program over? And so he met with Doug. And they said, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll sign the money over to Kevin because there was driver, the, the driver, the money came to Kevin for the drivers and the points and we'll sign everything over. And <clears throat> Doug says, well, we need to still use my hauler for the, till the end of the year, you know, just to make NASCAR happy, blah, blah, blah. So Bob Jenkins and myself formed a deal where Bob would supply the cars, the motors, transmission gears, and Doug would haul it. Bob paid all the bills. And at the end of the year, they were going to sign it over. Well, we went through three mediations between Doug and Charlie and Bob and myself. And the last mediation we had was, I think, the 20th, 21st of December. And Charlie walked out the room and says, I'm done. You'll have the deal. December 31st at 11.59, Charlie Schaffner filed personal bankruptcy in Georgia, which locked up all the assets, which included the race team. And we got nothing. Between Bob and I, there was probably over half a million dollars owed to us. My salary my motorhome expenses, my travel expenses, all that stuff, Bob's motor bills and stuff. And Doug kept racing the following year until they finally burned every bridge they could burn. That was probably the hardest year that I ever had in racing because I, I trusted both Charlie and Doug ended up losing a bunch of money over the deal. At what point did you decide to step away? And get out of the seat. Um, you know, I, I bounced around a few times between Jimmy Means 
you know, and and, um, and Mike Harmon. And I raced, uh, I think, the um, 2014 for Mike Harmon most of the year, I think it was. Every race, I was supposed to get X amount of dollars. Sometimes we start and park, sometimes we raced. We went to California. We had a fast Dodge. We come down pit road, and, and I got like two guys over the wall, changing right side tires, left side tires, and gas in the car. We lost like three laps at California. And I said to Mike, I said, where's our pit crew? Well, you know, they didn't show. Well, no, he didn't want to pay, right? And we go to another racetrack. We're fast. Same deal. No pit crew, no tires, whatever the case may be. I'd go to the shop on Tuesday and say, you got my money from last week? Uh, I, I, I'll get it to you. Finally, at the end of 14, 2014, I, I said to my wife, I said, you know what? I've gone longer than I wanted to because when I came down here in 94, my goal was to be 50. Well, if you go back to when you were in 1994, a 50-year-old man was an old guy. In 2014, a 50-year-old man's not as old he was back in, you know, with health and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I went longer. I think it was 53. I said, you know, I said, I can't keep chasing money. Not that Mike never paid me. I mean, he paid me every dime that was owed to me. But it was just, if I had to wait for money, I'd sleep in a Motel 6. If I wasn't in Motel 6, I had to wait for money, you know. And it was just, you know, I I had a great ride. I met a lot of great people. I got some great stories. Made a lot of people happy throughout my career. From the Vermont teddy bear, giving bears away to signing autographs. Um, that was it. That was, I had enough. Now, what are you doing these days? I know that you've got the business here. But you're you have also taken up golf pretty seriously. Is that correct? Yeah, you know I've always was a golfer. I grew up on a golf course when I was in Vermont. I used to shag balls, caddy. I was a head greenskeeper before I went to college. When we came down here, um, there was almost every racetrack had a charity golf tournament, and I'd go play golf. So four years ago, my older brother was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And I uh, turned 60, and a month later, he was in a hospital you know, doing major surgery. I said to my wife, I said, you know what? I said, there's this golf uh, golf week tour, senior tour, amateur senior tour. And I said, you know what? I worked my butt off to make it a NASCAR. I've got a business, and if I can't take one day off a week or one day off every two weeks to go play golf, then I don't need to own a business. Because life's too short. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, knock on wood, my brother's doing great. You know, I started it. And the first year, I finished 14th out of, um, uh, I think there was 40 guys in the C-Flight. Uh, second year, I won three tournaments, won the C-Flight Championship. Last year, I uh, won three tournaments. Um, last year was probably my highlight year. I played 22 tournaments. I had 20 of them in the top 10. Uh, 19 of them in the top five with three wins in the championship. Uh, this year, I stepped up to B-Flight. A couple, three weeks ago, uh, I was tied for second, one shot out of lead on the first of two days. I ended up six. When you move up, 
to B flights, like moving up from the truck series to the Xfinity series, you play against, you know, better golfers, better racers. It's a lot more challenging. Uh, the one thing that I do know from C flight to B flight, your mistakes are a lot less if you want to win. I've enjoyed the competition. It, it keeps me um, keeps me sharp, keeps me in, in tuned, and um, I just um, I love it. I love the game of golf. My wife plays the game, so you know she's not real good at it, but she has some good holes and good days. And um, we play. We try to play just about every week. How would you like for race fans to remember Kevin LePage? The same way they're doing it today. Um, every week, every week for the last two or three years, I get something in the mail for an autograph to sign. If it's one hero card or three baseball cards or a die cast, people, even till today, I go out to dinner and somebody will come up and want an autograph. To me, that means that I gave back and people respect me. I don't know if, if the generation of drivers today will ever have that experience because I don't think their following is that big compared to mine. It, it's it's weird that no matter where I am in the United States, every now and then somebody will come up and say, aren't you the, <laughs> the NASCAR driver? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it happened the other day at at UPS store, you know, and I've been out of racing for this will be six years. And so, you know, to me, you know, on a tombstone is he never said no. And I think that lesson came from Richard Petty. You know, I always sign autographs because one day you won't. I'm not going to say I didn't turn down autographs because there was times that we had signed for two hours and I probably could have signed for another two hours. But today, um, to see stuff come in the mail, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing that people still care about me. I don't know exactly how to put this, <laughs> but Kevin LePage does not mind naming names <laughs> and saying exactly what's on his mind over the course of the three installments of this interview. He has called out several people from Mark Martin to Jack Roush to David Ridland to this week, Tim Brewer and Mike Wallace and Casey Atwood and NASCAR. And you and I have both done a blue million interviews. We've done many, many interviews over the years and in a good many of them, we're talking to people who hold their cards pretty close to the vest. Yeah, that's exactly right, Rick. Kevin LePage. <laughs> <laughs> All his cards are out there on the table for everybody to see. <laughs> and because he doesn't hold anything back, I'm going to be honest with you, it's almost jarring to hear him say exactly what's on his mind. Now, whether that's right, wrong, or indifferent, that's Kevin LePage. Agree with him or not, he's going to say what he feels and see what happens from there. Well, in many ways, Rick, you have to appreciate that. I mean, from time to time, it is kind of refreshing to hear someone tell it like he thinks it is and not worry about the consequences. Well, it's definitely Kevin's side of the story. Now, whether or not you agree with that side of the story, that's up for you to decide, which brings us to... <laughs> Talladega. 
and the April 2008 Nationwide Series race, here is what happened according to Kevin LePage. He said that basically every driver's meeting that he had ever been to, everybody was told to keep their left side tires on or below the yellow line when coming out of the pits and then blend into traffic on the backstretch. If you watch the video of that accident, and Steve, the first thing that pops up when you type Kevin LePage into YouTube is Kevin LePage, Talladega crash. <laughs> doesn't mention anything about winning a race at Homestead. Doesn't mention anything about it winning a race at Bristol. It's Kevin LePage, Talladega wreck. The video shows that his left side tires are below the yellow line. So take that for what you will. His left side tires were below the yellow line throughout that incident. Now, at the last second, it did look like he was maybe steering up into traffic. I don't know. I wasn't driving the car. I am not going to sign blame in this. Absolutely positively, because I wasn't driving the car. Now, the pack catches him, and a car or two get past him, and Steve, all hell breaks loose. Carl Edwards is in line. And all of a sudden he runs all over Kevin and there's mass carnage. Now take blame out of the equation. It is a miracle it is an absolute miracle that Kevin and or Carl did not get hurt because Carl Edwards ran into the back of Kevin LePage at full speed. Mm -hmm. And that looked scary. Oh man. That always does. When you have that kind of accident at Talladega. And more than once, there have been debates about exactly who started that incident. That's what we have here. Kevin said that Carl Spotter never mentioned the fact that there was a car down low coming off pit road. While in the next week's issue of NASCAR scene, Carl Edwards said that his spotter did tell him that there was a car down low. I don't know whether Carl Spotter did or didn't mention anything. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of cars were torn up. And on top of that, Kevin also contends that NASCAR not only told Jerry Punch and the ESPN booth what to say about the accident, but he also says that he was told by NASCAR that if he did not issue a formal apology, he would never race again. Uh, that one is a little bit hard for me to believe. Now, I have no doubt that someone in NASCAR may have told Kevin about an apology. All right. Now that's, that is possible. I think it strains though, the limits about what NASCAR would do. Now I would really contend that NASCAR never told Gary punch what to say. I find that very hard to believe. So take that for what it's worth. But Kevin stepped away from the seat at the end of the 2014 nationwide series season. He now owns a landscaping business and he's also playing golf pretty competitively. And his brother was diagnosed with stomach cancer and Kevin took another look at life and said, you know what? I've raced basically all my life. I've got this business that takes up a lot of my time, the landscaping business, but life's too short. And if I want to go play some golf, I'm going to go play some golf. And I would imagine that that probably takes care of some of the competitor that is still in Kevin. I think you're exactly right. And I agree with him about life being too short, especially when you're hit with these unpleasant situations 
like we have talked about in the past and today, about cancer. Now, when you stop and think about it, life is too short just to be dwelling in things that are wrong. You have to go out there and do something else and make something happen that you enjoy. And in Kevin's case, it was golf. So I say to him, swing away. Steve, you're not a big golfer, are you? I don't know that I've ever known you to play much, if any, golf. Oh, no, I play quite a bunch, especially with Tom Higgins over the years. Now, Rick, you may find this hard to believe, but there were several racetracks that had golf tournaments before the race started on that Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We went to every one of those that we could because it was just a good place to uh, get away from some things, have some fun, and more important, get more familiar with the drivers and the other competitors. Man, a series of golf tournaments for these guys, they became friends in short order, and I always enjoyed that. The last time that I was actually out on a course <laughs> in the late 1990s, I lost five balls off the first tee. <laughs> and after that, I just drove the cart. <laughs> Wise but, move. <laughs> but Adam and I have found a video golf game that we really enjoy playing. And when we first started, I was his patsy. Oh, he, he would absolutely tear me up and win by 15 or 20 strokes at least. Well, then as I got better and I practiced a little bit, he'd only beat me by 10 strokes. And then I've actually won two or three rounds, Steve. <laughs> and we started to play online once he moved up the app. But when I got a three or four stroke lead after about three or four holes, then me and Jeannie and Jesse were going to go to dinner and I had to leave. And when I asked Adam about the match later, he was like, well, my internet connection was really slow that day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a pretty good excuse if you ask me, even if it is made up. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens, and if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports, so whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the May 1st, 2008 issue of NASCAR scene. We have talked before about scenes format changes over the years, but as I was going through this one to get some of the notes and everything, it really struck me. This was an absolutely beautiful publication. And I got to be honest with you. I didn't consider this a newspaper anymore. This was a magazine, but it was absolutely beautiful. This photography is extraordinarily sharp and the colors are absolutely vibrant. 
Well, Rick, publishing gained a lot with computer technology and digital cameras and digital images. And those are the kind of things that enabled Scene to have a much more presentable publication with the vibrant colors and everything else that went with it. And of course, this was during the Bob Pockris, Jeff Gluck, Mike Hembry days. And so at that time, I think that publication was firing on all eight cylinders. It was a good publication. Not as good as it was when I worked there, of course, but (laughs) matter of opinion. (laughs) But as far as the content goes, (laughs) Kyle Bush won the Sprint Cup race at Talladega. And this was 22 year old Kyle's second win in his first season with Joe Gibbs Racing in just nine starts. 22 years old. Now you got to remember, he did spend time with Henrik. Before yeah. going over to J.D. Gibbs. 60 laps or so into the race, Kyle tried to pit under caution, but he couldn't get into his pit stall and had to go back around before pitting. And he lost a lap at that point, but then he got the lucky dog when Carl Edwards brushed the wall on lap 117. And Steve, he came back from that and won the race. J.D. Gibbs said in this issue, I think for us, the first time we got a really good glimpse of Kyle was at a test in Atlanta. We realized we had something really special there. You could see it in crew chief Steve Addington and those guys' eyes. The 18, for whatever reason, we haven't been showing it the past couple of years. I think Kyle is filling that hole there, and having Steve and those guys working there is just a lot of things that really fit in that package. First and foremost, you have to have that guy behind the wheel And he just has a natural talent for it. The thing is, you forget how young he is. And anticipating how many years we have left to grow together, winning races and championships is really encouraging. Kind of prophetic words there, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Yeah, I believe old J.D. hit the nail right on the head. Yeah, this was the ideal fit. He talked about having a guy with a natural talent behind the wheel to fit with the team and make that team really hit on eight cylinders. That's exactly what Kyle did at that juncture with Gibbs Racing, and it worked. Well, heaven knows that the going hasn't always been easy. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> with, with Kyle at Joe Gibbs Racing, and but obviously things have worked out over there. I think so, Rick. As a matter of fact, I don't think you'll find anybody who will disagree with that. Then in the Nationwide Series race, Tony Stewart won the only race of his career at Talladega. Now, wait just a minute, Rick. I've seen the record book, and it says that he won a cup race there, didn't he? Oh, no, he did not. (laughs) Oh, come on now. He was awarded a win at Talladega in the cup race later this very same year after Regan Smith went below the yellow line coming through the tri-oval on the last lap. Regan Smith got to the checkered flag first. He won that race, period. Uh, now, Rick, the rule says you can't go below the yellow line unless you're pushed there and come back. That's okay. But if you stay below that yellow line, that is not legal. How can you win a race, Rick, when you are not legal? He won that race. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I do not, do not, do not like the yellow line rule in general, but I especially don't like it on the last lap. On the last lap, coming to the checkered flag, 
I don't care if you go through the infield and grab a hot dog at the hot dog stand and then come back out on the racetrack. If you're going for the win, forget the yellow line. Well, Rick, I tell you what, there's a lot of people that agree with you, and I can say I probably don't disagree, but at that time, at that time, that was the rule. And therefore, Regan Smith could not be awarded the victory. Well, if you don't necessarily disagree, why are you giving me a hard time about it, man? I'm just telling you the way it was. <laughs> Heaven forbid you to agree with me on something. <laughs> All right. So there are a handful of issues like that that just absolutely bug the ever-loving daylights out of me. Regan Smith won at Talladega in 2008, not Tony Stewart. Ricky Rudd won at Sears Point in 1991, not Davey Allison. Bobby Allison has <laughs> 85 career wins, not 84. Now that I've got that off my chest, <laughs> what are your big issues like that that bother you? That well, you would go to the mattresses over? Well, mine's a little bit different. Back in 1983, October 9th, 1983, Richard Petty won the Miller High Life 500 at Charlotte Motor Speedway. But oh. soon after the race, he was found to have an engine that was way oversized, and also left side tires had been mounted on the right side of the car. Are two, you going there? Two, yes, I am. <laughs> two flagrant fouls. Now, it took NASCAR three hours to come up with the final decision. He was docked 104 points and fined $35,000. At that time, the largest fine in NASCAR history. But he was still able to keep the victory. Now, what did I just say about Regan Smith? Okay. NASCAR did not allow him the victory because he broke a rule. But they let Richard Petty have this victory after he broke not only one, but two major rules. Now, NASCAR's philosophy at the time was that they wanted to race fans to leave the track knowing who the winner was. That's why they say they let Petty keep the victory. You should have seen the outpour of complaints after that happened. Many fans decreed that the only reason they didn't disqualify Richard Petty was because he was Richard Petty. And the more I thought about that, the more I got to say, NASCAR should have done the right thing at that time. If you're ever going to disqualify a guy, and the rules say that disqualification is a possible penalty, why wouldn't you do it then? That's my question. So it is your assertion, Hill, that you're going to go up on and plant the flag. It's your opinion that win should have been taken away. It is. And I'll tell you more reasons why. Not long after that race, me and Maurice Petty got to talking. And Maurice, of course, was Richard's engine builder. And he told me point blank, I did build the engine too big. I did it purposely. He's my brother. I love my brother. And I got to tell you, a lot of teams are going out there building these big engines and getting away with it. So I could see Maurice's point. And I really respected his point of view about all that. But it still indicated that he might have been at fault, but he did break the rules. He admitted it. 
and NASCAR didn't disqualify Richard. And I think at that time, it might have done NASCAR some good if it had, because it was shown fans that it doesn't matter who you are, Richard Petty or anybody else, if you're going to break these kind of rules, you're going to lose the race. If that win is taken away, Richard Petty career win 199. <laughs> that just doesn't sound the same yeah. as Richard Petty career wins 200. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just means that he would have had to go out and win one more race. So Richard Petty career win 199. Oh, <laughs> it just doesn't sound right. But then Steve, there was the incident with Kevin LePage and lap 171. Kevin is rolling off pit road. And all of a sudden it is mass chaos. 15 cars were wadded up. And afterward, everybody is pointing fingers at Kevin and Kevin is pointing his finger at Carl Edwards and his spotter. Now for the record, Carl said, my spotter said he was on the apron. Then all of a sudden he moved up and there wasn't even enough time to call it. So that's just a very, very dangerous situation right there. I'm glad nobody got hurt. This whole restrictor plate deal is a great spectacle. It's great for the fans, but stuff like that can kill somebody. That's just the bottom line. Now, Bob Pockers had the sidebar on this wreck, and according to it, NASCAR officials had told drivers that morning not to blend in fully until the field got to turn two. Now, blend in fully, that leaves a little bit of room for debate on where the left side tire should be and the yellow line and all that, but, but Bob did add, there could have been some confusion because there were jet dryers on the track getting it ready for cup qualifying, and it was really hard to hear exactly what was being said. Well, I'll tell you what. I believe every word Bob wrote because Bob is, without a doubt, and to this day, the best overall reporter in NASCAR. The day after that race, Kevin issued his apology. and He said, after reviewing tapes of the accident, I realize I need to apologize to NASCAR, the car owners, my fellow competitors, and most importantly, the fans. I made a huge error by blending onto the racetrack in the wrong area. This caused a multi-car accident and changed the outcome of the race for many teams. I'm so thankful that no one was hurt, considering the number of cars involved. In over 25 years of racing, this was the biggest mistake I've ever made behind the wheel of a stock car, and I promise that it will not happen again. It is such a terrible feeling knowing that NASCAR, the car owners, fellow competitors, and NASCAR fans think that was a boneheaded move. I certainly don't want anyone thinking of me in these terms. Speaking yesterday before reviewing the tapes of the accident made me look like a heel, and there is not a single person to blame for this huge mistake except myself. I think maybe Kevin might have had some thought here and realized that the best way for him to continue and get along with other teams, other drivers, and even NASCAR itself was to go ahead and apologize and own up to what the error was. I'm not sure, you know, just like you, Rick, I'm not sure if that error was made. And Bob Parker's report did give us some reason to believe that things could have been confused about how to blend back into the track because of the noise from the hitchers, you know. So, I don't know, though. I think overall, Kevin made the right move here. As controversial as that race was for Kevin, it was a feel-good day for Morgan Shepard, who finished 13th 
on the lead lap. Very good, considering Morgan's age at the time. Morgan said it felt good, and it showed people that I still know how to draft and drive a race car. I'm 66 years old, but it doesn't knock me out. I can handle the heat better than most of them out there. And you know what? I guarantee you he could at that point. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. According to a notebook item with the Nationwide Series coverage, Kevin Harvick was giving Morgan a car. That was one example of the kind of respect that Morgan has from people in the sport. And here's another. Tony Stewart said, I think that's bigger than me winning this race. It's bigger than me winning the race. And this is a huge win for me. I'm just so proud. Morgan is such a good guy and he pours his heart and soul into his series. Now he goes and says something like that and it makes it almost impossible to ever be mad at him. <laughs> almost. <laughs> well, I think Tony was reflecting the respect that everybody in the garage area had for Morgan because of what he had accomplished in the past and for his durability and for how long he had been racing and really how much he had done for the sport. Now, speaking to Tony Stewart, there were four different news stories in this issue on the possibility of him looking at going into team ownership. One was a general overview. Another focused on him being intrigued by the possibility. Another on what kind of owner he would be. And finally, one on how his leaving Joe Gibbs racing might play into silly season that year and the dominoes that it would have created. And here's how on top of things that scene was not only at that time, but basically throughout its run, it was mentioned that Tony had basically five to 10 offers, but the one that was mentioned specifically was Haas CNC racing, which was owned by Gene Haas, which is exactly where Tony wound up. Yes, it is. And now today it's called Stuart Haas racing. And I understand that Tony got a very, very good deal to come into ownership with that team. Joe Gibbs Racing had switched to Toyota that season, and Les Unger was the National Motorsports Manager for Toyota. And I think that Les pretty much saw the handwriting on the wall. This is what Les said. We think Tony is a hell of a driver and a hell of a spokesman for Toyota. I certainly hope that he remains in the Toyota family, but it isn't anything we have any say over. When we put our partnership with the Gibbs organization together, Obviously, Tony was a part of that situation, but it wasn't predicated solely on Tony Stewart. Now, that's not exactly what I would call a ringing endorsement <laughs> for whether or not Tony was going to stay with Toyota no, and I think Joe Gibbs it, Racing. I think that Les and all the other guys had a very good idea of what Tony was going to do. It's just a matter of who he was going to do it with or how he was going to do it. Now, he got the deal from Haas, and he was gone. Danica Patrick had won an IndyCar race in Japan on April 20th, and there was speculation about whether or not she might be interested in moving to NASCAR. Jack Roush said that anybody in Danica's position, quote, needs to think long and hard about whether they've really prepared themselves for the experience. I haven't had a conversation with Danica, but I could lay out a program for Danica to let her have a look at what she might do and what she would enjoy doing and see if there was a match there. It's not clear that because she won an open wheel race, it would be a straightforward thing for her to step into a stock car. Quite the contrary. 
I think she'd have to get comfortable with it and the people around her would have to get comfortable. And he's exactly right. Just because you succeed in one form of racing, that doesn't mean you're going to necessarily do it in another. There is a learning curve. Look at Jimmy Johnson in the Indy cars right now. Fair to say he's on a learning curve. AJ Allmendinger had sat out five races for Red Bull Racing after failing to qualify for the first three races of the season. Mike Skinner filled in for AJ and qualified for all five events, but then struggled in the races themselves. AJ returned at Talladega, but finished 30th after getting caught up in an accident on lap 187. AJ said, for me, I've always put it on my shoulders, thinking that it was me. Mike did a great job getting the car into the race like we knew he would, but we struggled in the races. That gave me a peace of mind because I was feeling the same thing. It's not 95% on my shoulders or on their shoulders. We just need to get better. And that is where the confidence is coming from. I've come from IndyCar racing and it's completely different. It's a brand new team. You've got nothing to judge off of. It would have been different if I was stepping into Jeff Gordon's car and said, oh, I know this car can win every weekend. When it's a brand new team, you don't know how much is you or the team. I think AJ is exactly right about that. I think we spoke earlier about having the right driver with the right team. Well, in this case, it was completely unknown who was the right driver and who was the right team. They had to learn together. So that's probably the biggest reason why AJ was struggling. I think AJ Almondanger has done pretty doggone well for himself this year, especially. He won the cup race at Indy, and he's won so far this year three Xfinity races. And Saturday at Daytona, he was this close to winning the Xfinity race there. You're exactly right, Rick. And there is no doubt about AJ's confidence right about now. That's just a career resurgence that's just good to see. And how the sports past, once again, connects to its present. You're right, Rick. And I think in this podcast, we've come up with some very good examples why this is and why it connects to our present. Hey, I'm Randy LaJoy. You're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey, this is Buckshot Jones, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Randy LaJoy's a dead. So last Thursday, me, Jeannie, and Jesse, we headed up to Boone to take Adam some stuff for his apartment. And of course, we all had to have lunch there on the main drag through town. And after lunch, we stopped in a shop to get some App State t-shirts. Like we hadn't already been spending enough money at App State. (laughs) (laughs) But as we came back out of that shop, this guy came up to me and he said, are you Rick Houston? Are you kidding me? I'm surprised you didn't come up, turn around, and start yelling, hey, right here, Sasquatch. Sasquatch. <laughs> oh, man. Why do you, you got to dump all over my story? <laughs> well, it turns out that Pete Martin at Tweet Speedy Pete on Twitter introduced himself. And Steve, he said that he just really enjoys our little old podcast. And best of all, 
he did it in front of Jeannie and Adam and Jesse. And, and Adam was immediately like, okay, that's it. I'm going to have to transfer now. <laughs> it's been a good ride, Boone. <laughs> so long, Adam. <laughs> I don't know how to end this thing. <laughs> how do you end a Zoom meeting? Huh? Leave. I'm leaving. Hi, right, bud. Bye. See you.